0: Lord, it is our prayer this morning that our hearts would indeed be your royal throne. Father, if, if we could just live out the words that so easily spill from our lips. And so it is our intention, Father, to continue in our worship as we listen to your word and as we let your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and as you poke around in our thinking that we would take the testimony of the word today and apply it to our lives. Thank you for how practical your word really is. And thank you that you have recorded for us so accurately the testimonies of those who have gone on before us that we can learn from watching and listening. Father, stir our hearts, convict us in areas where we need convicted, turn us and change us where we need convicted, adjusted, may we in quietness and in surrender allow Jesus Christ to be Lord of our lives, that we would not be duplicitous, to be here with an intention and with a word on our lips and to go from here and live an entirely different manner. So let your word do its perfect work, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Some time ago... I heard a story of a man who had been very, very ill, and in fact, he had gotten to a place where it was very evident that his life was down to the last few days, if not hours. As he diminished in his strength, and it became very evident that the time was near for his departure, he was quietly resting in an upstairs bedroom in his home where his wife and others cared for him. And on an afternoon where the house was particularly quiet one day, he rallied from his rest. He had not spoken and he was not expected to live at all. And as he rallied and awakened from his deep, deep coma-like sleep, He smelled that the house was filled with the aroma of chocolate chip cookies. He loved chocolate chip cookies. And as that aroma spilled into his bedroom and into his nose and it awakened his mind, and he thought to himself, if only I could just taste one more chocolate chip cookie. No one was around. He could hear his wife down in the kitchen and he decided that if he was going to get a chocolate chip cookie, it would be up to him. And so he slid sideways out of bed and literally rested, lying on the floor, and then belly crawled slowly over to the stairwell and uh, turned around and as a child uh, does, slid on his belly backwards down the stairs, rested when he got to the bottom. It was almost more than he could take got up on all fours finally, and one plodding step at a time, made it to the kitchen, made it over to the counter where fresh baked cookies, sure enough, chocolate chip cookies were on a rack on the countertop. He got to the bottom of the counter and just two and a half feet above him were the cookies and he gathered his strength and began to reach up and had just gotten his hand up there when all of a sudden, kawak with a spatula, his wife hit him and said, You leave those alone, they're for the funeral. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I needed you to laugh because the rest of the message is not funny. In fact, it's, it's quite serious As I invite you to turn back to Genesis chapter 47, we have a man who is very old and he is ready to die. Like the man in our chocolate chip story, or make-believe man, our Bible character is not make-believe. His name is Jacob, but he has a privilege and that is the privilege of recognizing that he is about to die. Do you know that many of us in this room will not know when it's our turn to die? It's a very serious subject, and it's a very serious matter. Inevitably, as we take our character stories and our biographical sketches through the book of Genesis, uh, the, the old papa bear, Father Jacob now, like his father Abraham and like his father Isaac, has come to the place in his life where his days are few, and it appears that he's down to just literally hours to live. I want you to know that this morning, our message is specifically about an old man in his final words. And so therefore, really practically speaking, our target audience this morning are the old men of the audience. You can define who you are. In our story, it's an aging man, and all of us are aging, that's for sure. There are, in the United States, over 25,000 centenarians. Do you know that? A centenarian is someone who has attained the rich, ripe old age of 100. Janet and I were at the University of Maryland Medical Center this past Thursday morning for a semi-annual checkup for Janet's kidney transplant. And praise God, it just surpassing all expectation. And a wonderful, beautiful, healthy wife and thankful for that. And uh, it occurred to me the other day that Deanna Martin has phenomenal kidneys. And if you ever need one, she has one left. Okay. So, and they work great. But while I was sitting in the waiting room, Uh, Up on the screen, they were scrolling um, editions about articles on the TV screen, special edition programs for the medical center, articles about your health. And it was interesting that there was a story about a centenarian there. And uh, he was very active still. He said the worst day of his life had been about 10 years before when he had to bury his wife, of course. And by the way, do you know that only... only, uh, um, Uh, Two out of ten men will bury their wives. Eight out of ten wives will bury their husbands and be widows. Statistically speaking, uh, about 80% of all women can look forward to living alone, usually in your old age, but not always. And only about two out of ten men look forward to living alone. I don't mean anticipating with joy. I don't think I meant that. (laughs) But I found it interesting that this old gentleman, this centenarian, by the way, do you know what a super centenarian is? It's somebody who reaches the age of 110. And that's a super, and uh, Mr. Buckles made it to 110, so he was a super centenarian. And um, this old man on the screen at the medical center was wood carving in his wood shop, and they were talking to him, and I was struck by a comment that he made. He said, you know, I just feel like I'm 50 years old. And so I'm 50, so I thought to myself, well, I feel like I'm 100 years old, I guess. So, um, but it happens in a hurry, doesn't it? And we are all aging. And in our story in the book of Genesis in chapter 47, where we'll pick it up, We are now at the end of the life of Jacob. Jacob is the father of Joseph. Most of you, uh, if you don't know your Bible or this story very well, we've been working our way through Genesis, and I'll not take much time to review, but to put it in context and remind you, since it's been a number of weeks since we've been here that we are now uh, in the story where Jacob is an old man, and they're all living in Egypt. You remember that Joseph, with his coat of many colors, was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery into Egypt, and for over two decades lived in Egypt, unbeknownst to his father whether he was even alive or not. This broke the heart of his father Jacob, to the point that numerous times in the story we have heard Jacob say, I'm going to die. He says that repeatedly in our story today, it's true. He really is going to die. The grief over losing his son Joseph and thinking that he was dead. Remember, his brothers took that coat of many colors and tore it and put goat's blood on it and fabricated a story that he had been killed. But uh, unbeknownst to them, God had a plan. And God was uh, in control, and we've dealt with all these different topics as we've been in the life of Joseph, as he's been in prison, as his brothers then uh, came down into Egypt. Remember, they were starving, and you remember how God got Joseph out of prison in that, like, three-and-a-half-minute unbelievable turnaround when the butler and the baker had forgotten all about him, and he was essentially rotting in the prison cell. One day, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, had a dream And the the guys remembered, hey, there's a guy in prison that can interpret dreams. They brought Joseph up and it's just the most unbelievable rise to power where he hears Pharaoh's dream. Remember the skinny cows were going to eat the fat cows and the skinny skinny stalks of corn were going to eat the fat stalks of corn. And Joseph said, God has told me that the Meaning of your vision is that there will be seven years of plenty, and we better prepare though because they will then be eaten up by seven years of famine. And uh, Pharaoh looked around his court decided he could find no one more qualified than this young Hebrew man, Joseph, in front of him, puts him in charge, and in, like I said, in about three minutes, he goes from blinking in the sunlight, from coming up out of his dungeon, interpreting the dream of Pharaoh, to being placed second in command over all of Egypt to fill their silos upright and bunker and pour grain out on the ground, and they stored it up for seven years of plenty. You know that during that time, And this is an important little thing to remember as we get into our story today, that Joseph then is married and he has two boys. They're going to be in our story today. But after the seven years of plenty are up, then the seven years of famine begin and the ground dries up, there's no food. And that's when Jacob sent his other sons down. That's when they discovered Joseph. That's when we had that great story of reconciliation, forgiveness, meeting them. What a powerful moment that was. And now he's sent them all back with Pharaoh's orders. They've had carts and horses and mules to bring Jacob and all their stuff and all the grandkids and all the nieces and nephews and everything from Canaan, the promised land that God had promised Abraham, their grandfather, that would be theirs. And then remember we had that concept of an ark named Egypt. And there, cradled in the middle of a pagan land, God uses pagan Egypt as an ark of refuge for his Hebrew children. And there they're going to take root. And there they're going to become a populous a people, a strong people, as many, God told Abraham, and then he repeated it to Isaac, and he repeated it to Jacob, as many people as the stars of the sky or as the sands of the sea. And so there they are in Egypt, and that's where we pick them up. We are now in the years of famine, and uh, it's interesting to note that um, for 17 years... Jacob had raised Joseph, and when he was 17 years old is when he was sold into slavery. And then when we start reading our story today, we're going to re- be reminded that it was for 17 years that Jacob was revived with the encouraging news of his son, and he lived in Egypt for 17 years. So he got to live with Joseph for his first 17 years of Joseph's life, and then the last 17 years of Jacob's life, they were together. There's going to be really only uh, three sets of players in our story today there's going to be jacob an aging man an old man and our story the rest of chapter 47 and all of chapter 48 is his final words are his final words it goes on into 49 but we have to wait till next week for that so you have the picture of this old man he knows like our chocolate chip guy he knows he's gonna die he knows his time is short and by the way, if you said to, in your mind, as I said, this message is geared towards old men today, I don't want you to think that in a broad general way, it doesn't all apply to us exactly because none of us know when our last day will be and all of us must live with a prepared heart to meet the Lord. And so you ask yourself the question as we go, am I ready to die? I told you it was a serious subject today and that we won't be laughing anymore. But I hope that you'll listen and take in the passage. I'm going to break it down into four parts. I was saying that there are three key players. There's the old man, Jacob, and then there's Joseph, his son, and then the third set of players are Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons. Okay? And they're going to... It's going to start out with a dialogue between Jacob and Joseph. And that's where we're going to pick it up in chapter 47 and verse 27. I'm going to break our reading down into four parts. The first part, which we're going to read in chapter 47, is, is, I call it, rest in peace or reserving his place. This is Jacob making sure he can rest in peace or making sure that he has a place reserved for himself. Reserving his place. Let's read now our text. I'll interrupt myself a few times. You stay with me as we take in the passage and understand the passage and interpret it somewhat. And then at the end, there's going to be four important life applications. Beginning with verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. And they acquired, this is 4727, they acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Now, between verse 27 and verse 28, 17 years go by, essentially. So there they are, cradled in the Ark of Egypt, taking root as a nation. And it says in verse 28 And Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. He's an old man. He's a super, super centenarian. And when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph. Now, I take it, it doesn't say it in the passage, but I take it that implicit is in our understanding is that Jacob understood that his time was very limited. And he calls now for Jacob, Joseph, excuse me. If, uh, one other thing I need to say. If you're new to the story, know that now as we read through this entire passage, he's going to use Jacob's new name that God gave him at Bethel, And when God met with him once, Israel, that's where the name Israelites comes from, in the nation of Israel even today, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. But notice, as we read the story, late in his life, his name is used interchangeably. So Jacob and Israel in our story is the same guy. All right? And he lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. And when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph, and he said to him, "'If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh, and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried.'" and i will I will say as you i will do as you say joseph said swear to me so it's like a double oath swear to me he said and then joseph swore to him and israel same guy jacob worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff let's think about what's happening here number 1 of our reading breakdown is that he is reserving his place reserving his place Jacob knows he's going to die, and Jacob does not want to be buried in Egypt. He wants to be buried with his fathers in Canaan. This is a statement of Jacob's faith. Jacob believes that what God said is true. Jacob is making a statement before all of his family. Don't leave me here. This is not where God wants us. God is going to take us there. Nobody knew that 400 more years would go by and that the nation of Israel in Egypt would grow so big and strong that the, a new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph would put them into slave labor until one day a man named Moses would surface, raised in Pharaoh's court, and would lead them out you know that story well. That's going to be 400 years from right now. But Jacob wants Joseph to make a promise and a vow to him that he will not bury him and leave him in Egypt, but that they will take him up. He's actually going to get permission from Pharaoh to go do it now. Joseph himself will be carried. Joseph's going to do the same thing, but he's going to be carried by the children of Israel 400 years later. uh, in A mummy. And uh, carried up in a casket all the way to Canaan. It's an interesting little statement. We've seen it before. Do you remember Abraham, Grandpa Abraham? Remember, there's Abraham, then there's Isaac, then there's Jacob. Abraham had a servant named Eleazar, and Eleazar came to him on Abraham's command one day, and he said, put your hand under my thigh. We've already talked about that. And this is a Middle Eastern way of making a vow. It's very strange to us Westerners. It's a very serious thing and it's a very binding vow. We don't really know what happens there exactly, but the old man's sitting down and he says, slide your hand here under my thigh. So there he is in a very unusual position of a man with his hand underneath the bottom of another man. All right, It's a very serious thing. You don't mess around. Hold really still and listen carefully. Okay, And that's what it means. It's, it's a very binding agreement. And it's a posture in which if you've done that, you cannot, you cannot go back on your word. You put your hand under my thigh. It's a done deal. It's chiseled in stone. But you notice that Jacob then wants even a a double vow. And he says, now I want you to swear to me on top of this. He's wanting what? He's wanting to know that he can rest in peace and that he's reserving his place to be buried with his fathers in Canaan, in the promised land. And Joseph says, yes, Father, I will do that. So there's Jacob in a conversation with Joseph. And now some more time is going to go by as we enter chapter 48. The next thing that we're going to see in our reading is that Jacob is going to recall or remember the past. He's going to recall or remember the past. And then he's also, number three, he's going to review the promise of God. He's going to review the promise of God. All right, chapter 48, stay with me. It's a history lesson. Sometime later, we don't know how long. We don't know if it was days, weeks, months, or even could have been a couple of years. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. And when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, he's going to speak now and he's going to remember the past. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. That would be uh, the old name for Bethel. And remember, God had met with him in the vision of angels with the stairway where he went up into heaven and back. This was on his way when he went to work for his father Laban. And then when he comes back, two times, about a little over 20 years apart, he met with God. God spoke to Jacob at Bethel, or Luz, in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me. And he said to me, and now he's going to review the promise, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. So he repeats what God had already told Abraham, what God had told Isaac, and what God had told Jacob twice before. And Jacob on his deathbed musters the strength to sit up on the side of the bed and repeat Joseph, this is what I remember. This is what God said. He spoke to me at Luz and I want to review the promise with you. Now then, he goes on and he says something very strange in verse five. Your two sons, speaking to Joseph, Jacob speaking to Joseph, now then your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Reuben and Simeon were his two firstborn sons that we're going to see next week receive an anti-blessing when he goes down the line of all of his sons and gives a prophetic statement and blessing about all of them right before he dies. But his two oldest remember had gone to the Shechemites put them to the edge of the sword in an inappropriate way and had wiped out an, inno- an essentially an innocent people group and he And also his oldest son had slept with one of his wives. And so he was putting them aside. And now he is literally, without Joseph's permission, I take it, announcing to Joseph that on my deathbed, I am adopting your two sons to become my two sons. And I think what part of what's happening here, and he's going to go into a reflection about his wife, Rachel. Do you remember that he went and worked for Laban for seven years, Jacob did? Got schnookered on his wedding night and he ended up waking up on the next morning after his wedding night with her older sister, Leah, the sad-eyed Leah, who had a sad heart after that. And he had children. And then he had children with both of their concubines before he finally got to marry the woman that he really loved, and that was Rachel. And so what I think he's doing is he's reflecting back about how much he loved Rachel, and that really it was Rachel who he intended to be his wife. He didn't really mean to have all these other wives. It just happened. You know, oh, honey, it just happened. All right? And it just he didn't really mean to. And, and then he had two boys with her, but she died after having Benjamin. So Joseph and Benjamin were the only two sons that Jacob had with his beloved wife, Rachel. And I think what he's doing is he's taking... Joseph's two sons and adopting them in as though they were his two oldest sons, as though in proxy they are his two firstborn sons that will receive the blessing. Later on, when their tribes are established, they're going to sin and they're going to lose the blessing. And you'll recall that God will fulfill his promise of King Jesus. Is the, he's not the Lion of Manasseh, is he? He's not the Lion of Ephraim. He's the Lion of Judah, and it's going to be his thirdborn. It's going to be Judah through whom God ultimately brings Jesus. Through the tribe of David, David then, and Jesus is born out of Judah's tribe. It's an interesting thing. We'll talk a little more about that later. But right now, on his deathbed, he's adopting his two grandsons to become his. Notice what it says. Now then, your two sons, verse 5, born to you in Egypt before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And Bible students agree that it's stated in such a way that it's, as it were, a replacement. Any children born to you after them will be yours. Okay, so he's differentiating. Joseph, if you have any more kids, they're your kids. But these two are mine. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned in the promised land someday when they inherit Canaan. They will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. That is, the other boys, other children born to Joseph will be in the tribes under their brothers. As I was returning, he now, verse 7, flips over to remembering his sorrow of losing Rachel. Verse 7. As I was returning from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. This is part of his remembering the past. He has reviewed the promise. And now we're going to start this new section to the end of chapter 48 that I'm calling number four, realigning the pieces. And it has to do with this adopting of of sons and rearranging his family order in essence. It's a little bit strange. I think that Joseph understood, back up in verse 5, when Jacob looked at Joseph and told him, your two sons are going to be mine, Joseph understood what was going to happen. And starting with verse 8 is actually sort of a ceremony, you might say. And Joseph understands what's going on. I don't think Ephraim and Manasseh totally understood. By the way, in this passage as we read... It's going to say that Joseph takes his boys from Jacob's knees. Now, I picture when I read little boys, maybe as old as seven years old, sitting on grandpa's lap. He's going to bless them. Remember that the right hand is the right hand of blessing and double honor to the oldest son. The left hand is the lesser blessing. That's going to come up in the story. Pay attention. But you need to think about something and read with with, uh, asking some questions. When were Manasseh and Ephraim born? They were born in the rich years. They were born during the seven-year window of plenty. When did Jacob come to Egypt? During the middle or so of the famine years, the seven years of famine. And now how long has he lived in Egypt? 17 years. You're looking at 20-year-old guys, 18, 19, 20-year-old guys. I don't know why it says that he moved them off their knee. What I picture then, when I realize the timeline that's gone by, is that these boys must have been on their knees, maybe with their hands on their, father's, their grandfather Jacob's thighs. I don't know. Maybe their forehead even on his knees. As, as he says, you're going to be mine. And they kind of realize something really serious is going on here. All right? So get the picture. Here we go. Jacob, now number four, is going to realign the pieces. He has, he has reserved his place in Canaan. He has remembered the past. He has reviewed the promise. He's realigning the pieces of his family now. When Israel, verse 8, saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, "'Who are these?' Well, he knew who they were. He had already spoken to them. And so that's why Bible students, when they look at this, think that this is the beginning of sort of an official ceremony, much like when a bride and her father walk down the aisle, the minister standing here, and what does he ask? Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Does he know who's given him? Does he know who it is? He knows everything. Does everybody in the audience know everything? Yes. But it's what? It's the mark of an official ceremony. So, and it's a little bit that way. Whose sons are these? This is the beginning of a a ceremony, sort of, in their little bedroom with the old man, just enough strength to sit up on the side of his bed. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Whose are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. And then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. And I see Joseph having... You know how those young, younger boys... Get up there. Let your grandpa touch you. Let your grandpa hug you. And Joseph hugs him and kisses him. Verse 11, And Israel said to Joseph... This is a great verse, full of emotion. I never expected to see your face again, Joseph. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. And then Joseph removed them from Israel's knee. There's that funny phrase. 20-year-old guys. How did he? I don't know. He's repositioning them. And bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left, toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, "...though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn." Did you get that? Alright, so Joseph knows what he's going to do, and Joseph positions Manasseh, his firstborn, so that his father Jacob will put on his grandson's head his right hand, so that in the right order of the family tree, the oldest son will receive the double blessing. He will be the next in line. The left-handed son is the lesser blessing." And Jacob crosses his arms. Notice what he says, and then notice what Joseph says. Then he blessed Joseph, and he said to Joseph, okay, he's got his arms crossed, and his hands on the boys' heads. May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this. He's proclaiming his testimony of faith in God, isn't he? May he, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. In other words, their name is no longer yours, name, Joseph. They're my name. They're my boys. They're in my family tree. And these two boys will inherit part of the land in the breakdown of all the tribes of Israel, just like all the rest of the sons. Verse 17, notice Joseph's response, he doesn't like it. And in the Hebrew grammar, it comes out that he doesn't like it at all, and he's a little bit upset. When Joseph saw, verse 17, his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold. That word took hold in the Hebrew is that he grabbed his arm hard and tried to force it away took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused, and he said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Don't worry. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he. Have we heard this before? Isn't it an interesting pattern? that God, through this chosen line, continually reverses the birth order. Jacob himself, he, he acted in the flesh and snookered his older brother Esau out of the birthright. It was God's intent, evidently, all along. Here we go again, and there's other instances as well. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be great, verse 19, greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. And he blessed them that day and he said, and this is a really neat blessing, notice it, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. Okay, in other words, from now on in Israel, this will be one of the blessings that people say to one another. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. That's pretty neat, isn't it? May God make you like that. So puts them right up there. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Why did he do that? We don't really know, clearly, Jacob, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, knows what he's doing. He does it on purpose, and he does it, evidently, to just pronounce and show that God is in charge here. It's not the natural birth order, that this is God's sovereign selection. God has a plan, and God is working out that plan, regardless of what the family tree and family order is. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. And then Israel, verse 21, said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. Okay, he's telling him, God is going to be with you. Jacob really has faith in God here, doesn't he? By the way, by the way, it is interesting to note that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, in the Faith Hall of Fame, that this is the only notated point for which Jacob is commended for his faith. It is when he crosses his arms and pronounces blessing on the younger son. Hebrews eleven twenty one, and that's what he was commended for. So it was clearly that God had told him to do it, and though it wasn't logical to him in faith, he pronounces the blessing on the younger son in obedience to what God was leading him to do. Now he blesses Joseph again. The boys are gone, evidently are still there. I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give you the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. We'll stop there. Nobody really knows what he meant by the land that he took from the Amorites with his sword and his bow that he gave to Joseph. The idea there is that it's a ridge of land the word for ridge is the same word for Shechem, and some Bible students suggest that this is the land of the Shechemites, where his two oldest boys had gone in and killed and slaughtered those people in, in a, uh, it, you know, in a terrible slaughter, and though it was done inappropriately, and Jacob condemned it. Nevertheless, that land did become his, and instead of letting any of his older boy's sons get it, he wanted Joseph to have that part of the territory. There's some speculation on the wordplay there. It could also be that it's referencing an incident that occurred in Jacob's life that just is not, a, not recorded in history, that with the, board, with the bow and the sword, he took over some land Regardless, Joseph knew exactly what Jacob was talking about, that there was a piece of ground, he was giving him that ground to bless him. Well, there you have it. That's uh, quite a history lesson, isn't it? Quite an unfolding of an old man sitting on his bedside. There he is. It occurred to me as I looked at this passage, though, that there are some, some applications that we can make in conclusion that would be helpful to us. This will not take too many more minutes, I trust that you'll stay engaged after all of that history unfolding and and unfolding the passage. It occurred to me that, that Jacob on his bedside had a need to do some things. He had a need to make sure he had communicated to his children. And so I want to make four observations in conclusion of what an aging father needs. What an aging father needs... Number one, I want you to notice, as Jacob did, that an aging father, number one, needs to embrace with reality this season of his life. Did you see that Jacob did that back in chapter 47 and verse 29 when we first started in? It said, when the time drew near for Jacob to die. It doesn't say, but as I said, it's implicit in the passage that he evidently understood. This is my time to go. I've got to take care of some things. I'll tell you something. We need to not want to die. That's not God's plan. And as we age, life gets difficult. We We need to not pretend that we're somebody that we're not. All right? But one of the most important lessons that a father will ever teach his family is the last lesson he will ever teach them, and that is how to die. And you need to embrace this season of your life. Do you know that the psalmist has clearly stated that we're going to live three score and 10 years? That's 70 years. Psalm 139 says that all of our days are written in his book, so none of us know how long we're going to live. We don't know if we're going to go in our youth like my 21-year-old brother. We don't know. We don't know if we'll go in the middle of our strength years, as my father-in-law did, of a brain tumor at age 51, 52 Or if you will live your 70 years and like my father, make five more years when the old heart gives way. But one of the things that I personally use as a point of reference is what the psalmist said. He said to number your days, and he said three score and ten, that's 70 years. So I expect in my plan, I'm making plans for 70 years of productivity. And at 70 years, I'll check in and see if I have my strength still and I'll keep going. Because God sometimes blesses you with more strength. But one of the things Jacob did is he understood the season of the life in which he was in. And if you don't do number two, you won't do number... If you don't do number one, you won't do number two. Number two is, he trusted an aging father needs to trust a steward with the details of his will. He knows he's going to die, number one, and he embraces this. He understands where he is. He understands that he doesn't have long to live. And so number two, then, it's very important to him. Did you remember in the back of chapter 47 that he gets Joseph in there, puts his hand under his thigh, and he puts his house in order, basically. He basically says, you write this down in the paper here and you make sure you do it. You make sure that you do this after I die. An aging father needs a trusted steward. Do you know how often it is that we experience people who lose their spouse? Men, listen to me closely. And the man, for some reason, just didn't think he was going to die. And then the next thing you know, instead of checking out of the hospital, he goes to heaven. Or something happens and he's gone and he doesn't have his house in order. Can I give you four phrases to put your house in order? Number one, do it in writing. Do it in writing. Make sure your steward has your will in writing. What are your wishes? What do you want? Put it in writing. And may I add to that that it is so helpful for me when I meet with your widow and we plan for you to be in a box up here that I have in handwriting, dear Pastor Van. When you do my funeral, you make sure that you do this and you use this passage and sing this. That's so good. So good. you remember Junior Laymaster, a brother here that broke his neck? He didn't do it in writing, but he spoke to me clearly and he said, you say this and you say this and you say this and that helps me so much so that when your family's here grieving and your friends are here and some of your unsaved relatives and I can say, now listen to me, before you leave this room, I have to tell you some things that you need to know because... He told me to tell you. Put it in writing. Put it in writing. Make sure in writing your wife knows where your insurance policies are. Make sure she knows where everything is. Make sure it's in writing. It's remarkable how many of us don't do this. Not only is it in writing, but make sure it's all in order. Do not leave your wife with messes, including the basement in the garage. I'm preaching to myself to clean up behind you. Put it in writing. Put it in order. Don't leave that on your family. Remember, the last and most important lesson you're going to teach your family is how to die, Papa. You need to plan on being the one. Statistically, it's going to be you. Thirdly, put it in writing. Put it in, pl- in put it in writing. Put it in order, and put it in a place. What good is it to write it down and we can't find it in your stacks of stuff? Put it in a place and make sure the steward, not just your widow, just not just your family, make sure your steward knows where it's been placed. And fourthly, and it has to do with the steward, make sure someone is in charge. Make sure someone is in charge. It's hard for your family to think, especially if you go prematurely according to our schedule. Especially if we're not expecting this to happen, what do I do? I don't know what to do. You talk to one of your friends. I did this before I went to Africa the first time, and I went to Malawi, and um, I was a little bit nervous. I'd never—I don't like leaving the United States of America. And uh, they talked about a little bit of a problem with some bandits, and uh, you know, law enforcement's pretty lame there, and real poor people, and they see the. The white guys as the rich guys, and it's just, you you know, you stand out in a crowd. And and I drove over to my friend's house. And I got out of my car, and he didn't know I was coming. And I, I went up to him, and I said, hey, I need to talk to you a minute. I said, I'm leaving for a missions trip to Africa. And I need you to know that if I don't come back, if something happens, the minute you hear about it, I want you and your wife to get over to Janet immediately. I said she's smart and she knows everything. And if you tell her that how she makes decisions is pretend Van is there and just do whatever she's telling him to do, and then do it. (laughs) That's how you do it, okay? Because she's very wise, very wise. She helps me a lot. That was not a put down. That was just reality. Okay. Put somebody in charge. Thirdly. And we don't have time to develop this now. Thirdly, communicate with clarity the convictions of his heart. What does an aging man need to do? An aging father needs to communicate with clarity the convictions of his heart. If you are of the mindset that your children, whatever, and especially younger parents fall into this, well, our children need to find their own way that is pure hogwash. You are called to lead your family, to follow God. And isn't that what Jacob did in all of chapter 48? I remember what God did. I remember what he's doing. This is what he said. Take my bones up here. Live for God. He's going to bless you. Your blessing will be upon you. Our job is to point our children to Christ. Our job is to raise them in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord and to teach them to walk in obedience to the Word of God. Your job is not to be silent about your convictions. Your job as the Father is to translate the convictions that you hold before Almighty God to the next generation and you, you keep at it until you die. It's really easy to be quiet. Can I tell you that the greatest thing you can ever leave your children is the knowledge that they know that daddy loved Jesus. The greatest thing that we can say about you, and when I preached my daddy's funeral in Michigan 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I started out by saying the greatest thing that you can say about Eugene Marceau is that he was a born-again Christian. You see, we'll grieve when you're gone. But we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope if you have communicated your convictions to your family. Speak to them how comforting it would be for some and how many of you would give $1,000 to have had a father who would have sat you down at the dining room table before he died or called you to his bedside and looked you in the eye and said to you, I want you to know that my faith and trust is in Jesus Christ and I believe his word is true. Now live for him. What is that worth? So it's got to be real. That's why you've got to make these decisions now. Communicate them with your family. And then finally, number four, an aging father needs to show with no uncertainty his love for his home. What does an aging father need to do? He needs to embrace with reality this season of his life so that, number two, he will trust a steward. He needs to trust a steward with the details of his will so that, number three, he will communicate with clarity the convictions of his heart. And ultimately, number four, before it's too late, you need to show with no uncertainty your love for your children, your home. Isn't that what Jacob did when he told Joseph, bring the boys here. Who are these boys? Remember that? And it says that he kissed them. And he loved them. Boy, that's something else some of you give your right arm for, isn't it? To have your old daddy back and to hear him say, I want you to know that I love you. Some of you never heard that. Why would you leave your family without telling them that? You tell them, come here, come here. You put your arms around them and you kiss them. And you say, I want you to know that I love you. I love you so much. I have a spot in the basement, in the corner of my basement, I reference it sometimes, it's called my dungeon desk. And I kind of relate with the Apostle Paul and I'm in the dungeon where I, where I have some books and my desk and a bulletin board and a file cabinet, a bookcase and a piece of carpet and my weightlifting bench. And I study for my messages down in the dungeon because I can't can't focus otherwise. And I have pictures plastered all over and Right in front of my desk, I have the last birthday card that I received from my father. It's got a big old mule deer, picture on the front. I don't know what the date is. I don't know when this was. And in, on the side of it, he wrote in his own hand. You know that's valuable. See, my dad's writing. And he said, Dear pal, you mean so very much to us. Do serve the Lord with gladness. Isaiah 26.4, Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Isaiah 26, 4. We love you so much. Boy, I'm glad my dad took time to do that. You know that? My dad was good to tell us he loved us. What's an aging father need to do? An aging father needs to embrace the reality of the season of life in which he lives. An aging father needs to trust a steward with the details of his will. He needs to communicate with clarity the convictions of his heart. And he needs to show with no uncertainty his love for his home. Listen, some of you might sit here and be tempted to say, I'm no aging father, i got to get out of here. I tell you, you don't know your timeline, my friend. It's clicking off in a hurry. I already referenced that I use for the trajectory of my life, the psalmist's words to number our days and to consider that three score and ten, seventy... I've got 20 years left. I've been at Fellowship Bible Church as the pastor for 15 already. 20 years is going to go like that. And those boxes down at the funeral home come in all sizes. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you ready? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Before he said that, in John 14, 1, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Listen to this. That where I am, there you may be also. Can I tell you that that's not a bad thing? But you've got to know you're going. Embrace the reality of your life. Know for certain that you're born again. Tell your family. Get your house in order. Let's be prepared. Amen? So, can you picture old Jacob kind of like this old man on the screen, huh? Getting up on the side of his bed and putting his chin on his stick. Joseph, come here. Some of you, some of you need to talk to your family. You know that? Get your house in order. Let's pray. So, Father, take the testimony of this aging old man, put it into perspective for us that we would have our homes in order, that we would be unashamed to pronounce and announce and proclaim to the next generation that Jesus is our Lord, that our sin is forgiven by grace through faith. We're heading for heaven. But in the meantime, may we be effective servants. May we put our homes in order. May we be the men and women and the boys and girls that you've called us to be, to love righteousness, to hate sin, to walk in obedience. Lord, we do look forward to being with you, to being in your presence. What a good day that will be. Help us to finish well, regardless of our ages. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.